I want to pray and then, uh, and then we're going to get into it. Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for each one here today. I thank you that you've brought them here. I thank you, Lord, that you are working in their lives, that you are speaking to them. Lord, I, I thank you that you are sovereign, that you are holy, and that you have a purpose for each one here. God, you are wooing them. We, we were saying earlier that your goodness is running after them. God, I thank you so much that you want to speak to these brothers and sisters. You want to bless them today. And so we invite you to do that, Holy Spirit. Come and move among us. Speak to us, Lord. Awaken us. I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would have your will be done here in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been, uh, it's been quite, well, it's been quite a, a year. It's been quite a couple of weeks here in B.C., uh, if you're if you're here today, or if you're joining us locally online, you'll know what I mean. But if you if you're not, if you're coming from a distance, I'll fill you in, you people in the camera over there. Uh, we live in a very wet place, don't we? It's very wet, and uh, and especially November, rainiest month of the year. And we had this storm two weeks ago that ripped through and just dumped up buckets full of rain on our on our province. I mean, rainfall records were smashed. I saw this one statistic; it was so crazy. In in Hope, the town of Hope, the previous rainfall record for a day was 35 millimeters, and two weeks ago, on, in one day, they got 175 millimeters. Like that's wild. That's like. You know how I always use basketball analogies? Here comes a hockey analogy, guys. This is, this, is, this is a Canucks analogy, even. Imagine if Elias Pedersen scored 450 goals this year. Like, that's what that's like. And I'll take odds on that if anyone wants to, you know. Anyways, uh, it's just crazy stuff. And, and, you know, the pictures were surreal. I'm pretty sure that the picture of the killer whale is photoshopped. But, uh, but the sea dew and the cow is definitely not. That's, that's real. Uh, they're, they're saying it could be the costliest natural disaster in, in Canadian history. And of course, we don't know what lies ahead in the next few days even with this. Now, what often happens, at least in Canada, when there's a tragedy like this, is that people are so eager to help. There's just this outpouring of support and, and generosity. And so we have, we have friends and family in, in the Fraser Valley. We saw on social media, hey, come and sleep on our, sleep on our, like, our couch or even hide-a-bed. Those awful hide-a-beds will even give you that, you know? And uh, a, a camp that Carolyn and I have spent a lot of time at, Camp Squia, just north of Hope, uh, they took in 100 to 200 stranded travelers, provided them with food and with shelter. There was even a GoFundMe I saw that raised about $10,000 for good drinking water for animals. $10,000! I mean, people are just like, they want to help any way they can. And this is so good, right? This is such a good thing. And I, I would say that what we see here is how, how the image of God that that, that each of us is endowed with by virtue of being human, uh, it comes out that, that, that the, the character traits of God are evoked in humans, in crises, in events like this, like compassionate generosity. That's when we see the image of God in humanity, in humanity despite the fact that we are deeply sinful people living in a deeply broken world. However, it's one thing for that to come out after a crisis, after a big event, it's, it's one thing for that to be a, a kind of, okay, what we'll, we'll give now that there's a need. It's another thing to, to live a lifestyle of generosity 
for the whole of someone's life to be oriented around that kind of generosity, for the whole of a community to be oriented around that. And so this morning, I want to introduce you to a church that I think puts every other community, including post-tragedy Canadians, to shame in terms of radical generosity. We're in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. I think this is going to be our last sermon in Acts before the, before the new year. We'll, we'll get back, we'll, we'll resume after the new year. But this is it uh, for, uh, for 2021. So verses 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What a church! What a ringing endorsement of the kingdom of God. I mean, what more needs to be said, right? Pack it up. Let's go home. Except you're stuck with me for a bit longer. I want to get into this because it's, it's so good. And I, I want to start by talking about the form of generosity in the early church. And then we'll talk about the basis. What could have prompted such radical giving? So let's start with the form of generosity. And, 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 the, and the first thing we read here is that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now this is a little bit different from a couple of verses later where we read that people were selling and giving all the proceeds away. Here they still have stuff, but they're just they're eager to share it with others. They, 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 they live with a very open hand with their possessions to the point that for a brother or sister in the church, my home is going to feel as much like their home as mine. That's pretty radical. And that is a challenge for all kinds of people. It's a challenge for people who, who hold their possessions very tightly and believe that it is theirs alone to enjoy. Think toddlers here. Some of you are in that right now. You know what I'm talking about. But, but also it's a challenge for those who are on the receiving end because an Acts 4 mindset requires that you admit that I don't have something and that you do, and that I would be blessed if you shared it with me. And that is sometimes a shot to the pride and to self-sufficiency, right? I, uh, I have about eight tools to my name, and uh, I, I know enough about fixing things to fill a whole book, if that book was two paragraphs long. Ba-boom, shh. <laughs> Uh, but I have a neighbor, oh, that was terrible, I have a neighbor uh, who owns like every tool and knows so much about fixing things, and so anytime I have need, I know I can go to him, because he's a really good neighbor, and he'll share with me, and he'll give me advice, and I'm, gr- I'm grateful for that, but it's, it's a little bit of like, ooh, like, you know, I'm not able to do this on my own, I don't have this whatever tool or instrument that he does. So it's a, it's a bit of a shot to the pride to admit that, no, I, I, I need grace. I, I need to receive generosity as well. And it's not only a challenge for individuals, it's a challenge for churches too. 
You see, we, we believe biblically that we are all members of one body. Every believer is a member of the body of Christ. But we also believe this about churches. That every church is united in that we are part of the body of Christ. We all share our, our faith in Jesus. So we've got this commonality as churches. And yet so often, we, we kind of defend our thing. We defend our, our church. We want to see our church grow and prosper, but we don't, we're not really that concerned about others. In fact, maybe we're okay if we thrive and other churches don't. Richard Baxter, maybe 350 years ago, commented on this. He said, Many will pray hard for the prosperity of their party and rejoice and give thanks when it goes well with them. But if any other party suffers, they little regard it as if it were no loss at all to the church. This isn't anything new. This is, this is the human heart. This has, been, this has been the case for a very long time, that this is how we, we have our little empire, our little kingdom, and we don't worry too much about others. You know, I, I think, even though this is a challenge for us and a challenge for churches, I do think we also know how good it is to give and receive this kind of generosity. Back in the spring, um, British Columbia had, after a long period of lockdown of churches had given permission for churches to have in-person services. Uh, it had to be outside. It had to be socially distanced. You had to wear masks. You remember this? This is back in the spring. You couldn't talk to each other unless you were praying for each other. And then you could only do that for 10 minutes and you had to be 1.2 meters apart still. And that's not, that's not a joke. That was really, those were really the rules. Those were the good old days, hey? Somehow I don't miss that very much. And so we really wanted to get people back together again because we had gone so long without it. But this, this property was a construction site and we didn't have any office space and, and renting an outdoor space from the district was not proving to be very enjoyable and so uh, we didn't know what to do. And then in stepped West Lynn Baptist in Lynn Valley and they said, here, use, use our property, use our lawn, have, a, have an outdoor service here. And, just, and they even provided a couple of people from their church who hosted us, welcomed us, made sure that we were 1.2 slash 2 meters apart. Uh, but it was, it was an act of generosity that allowed us to, to gather people together again. And my heart, and I think our heart, is that we would do the same. Now that we have our space, that we want to share our resources, share our gifts, to, to bless the church as a whole, to build up the whole body of Christ. That's what we see in Acts 4, that kind of mindset of whatever is mine is yours, and what's yours, if you're willing, is mine too. It wasn't an empty saying, it was real. Now it goes even further than that in Acts 4, though. Because it wasn't just that they were sharing what they had, their homes, their properties, their possessions, but we read that, that they were selling. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and gave it for anyone who had need. I mean, this, this is incredible. Sharing is one thing, but to sell homes, the, the level of sacrificial giving there, and we read the same thing in Acts 2, verse 45, that this characterized the early church. This was a distinctive. People, people noticed this. Of course they did. This kind of just this radical giving of whatever they had. I remember when I, when I started here years ago, uh, we, were st- we were raising money for this, for this, this building project, and I remember seeing some of the material 
that we had used to kind of uh, encourage people to give to the building project. And I remember there was a section about sacrificial giving with some, some examples. So for, an ex- for example, you could maybe give up one Starbucks drink every week, which what, a grande latte at Starbucks with inflation these days going for 40, 50 bucks a pop or something like that. No, but still five bucks each, 250 bucks a year, that, that's not nothing, right? Sacrificial giving. Now, there were a lot more extreme examples than that. I, I, that's just the one that I remember. But I don't think we ever suggested to people that they would sell a second home and, and give the proceeds to the building project because that's, like, that's, that's out of this world. That's craziness. If sharing possessions is a challenge for us, how much more so something like this, giving your inheritance to the work of the kingdom of God. And, and look at the result of this, though. Between these two forms of of generosity, we read that there were no needy persons among them. None. Now, that doesn't mean that there were no needy persons in Jerusalem, because I, I would imagine that the church did extend generosity, but the point here is among them, in the church, among brothers and sisters, there were no needy persons, that the church made sure of it, that whatever sacrifices were required to lift one another up so that there was no need, they were willing to do that. Now, I think we need to admit that what we have seen and experienced in the Western church is not this. That while there is generosity, and I'll talk about that too, we, we, have, not, we, have, we have not seen this, right? Can, can we admit that? This, 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 is, this is a whole other level. And, and I wonder if we could also admit that, that many Christians, evangelical Christians, have, have maybe without even knowing it, become captive to some of the idolatrous aspects of, of capitalism. I'm thinking about a consumerist mindset that says, I'll treat churches the same way I treat my internet provider. You know, what have you done for me recently? Am I still getting the best deal here? I'm talking about a, a competitive mindset that says I've got I've to buy a, a bigger house and a better car to keep up with these other people over here. Thinking about a status mindset that says I've got to accumulate possessions to mark my worth and value in the world. Talking about a comfort mindset that says I'm going to live kind of apart, cut off from people of different socioeconomic positions. Here's some statistics to kind of back up the fact that we haven't really seen this in our day and age. Some of your statistics people, I am too, I'm a big sports fan, so I love stats. Here's some stats. Um, Christians a lot of times talk about tithing. This is kind of like the benchmark, is, is your, your 10% of your income you're, you're giving away. The reality though, and, and I, I don't actually think that's necessarily, a, a, I'll get to this at the end, but a biblically mandated number. But um, the reality is that statistically only 10 to 25% of Christians actually do tithe. Instead, the average percentage of income that Christians give is 2.5%. Now, do you know what percentage of income Christians gave during the Great Depression? You, you probably do because it's right there. 3.3%. During one of the worst economic deep downturns in, in modern Western history, people gave more of their incomes than they do today in a time of relative abundance. 
Uh, and, and here's another crazy statistic. People who give 20, or people who make $20,000 a year or less, this is American, so like $100,000 Canadian, but $20,000 or less a year are eight times more likely to tithe than those who make 75000 or more. Eight times more likely if you're making way less than if you're waking, making way more. And this trend, I think we, we see accelerating uh, among generations like mine <laughs> coming up. The boomer generation, born between 1946 and 1964, uh, make up about 30% of the U.S. population, but 42% of the donor base. And I, I'm not, I wasn't clear if that was on churches or, or in society as a whole. But, uh, but the millennials, my generation, born between 81 and 97, also make up 30% of, of the American population, but only 7% of the donor base. I mean, us churches and charities, we're, we're in. We're in it. We're in for it in the next couple of decades, according to that. Now, it's not all bad news. Here's some, here's some good statistics uh, for, for us uh, as, as Christians, who, who, those of us who are followers of Jesus. It turns out it does make a difference if you follow Jesus. Uh, people who attend church two times or more a month give on average $2,900 to charities, any charities, whereas people who never attend church give an average of $700 to nonprofits and, and charities. So four times as much. And 96% of, of practicing Christians have given to a charity or nonprofit versus 60% of self-described agnostic or secular people. So it makes a difference, for sure. But could we still say it isn't, it isn't living up to what we see in Acts? That kind of generosity is, is I mean, 2.5% is a little bit different than I'm going to share all my possessions and sell my homes and give it to the poor. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, so is the Bible like a socialist document? Craig, did you vote for the Communist Party in the last election? Can we get a review of your voting record, please? I don't think Acts 4 is, is teaching socialism either, at least not in the way that it's been practiced in, in government today, and for, for a couple of reasons. One is, is that socialism as a kind of an economic model and, and gover, governance model is, is imposed from the top down. You don't have a choice in the matter. If you're wealthy, we're taking a bunch of your money and giving it to the poor, like whether you like it or not. And, and we're going to uncover all your tax shelters at some point. You know, like, you're not going to get away with this. You're, you're, going to, you're going to be part of this, whether you like it or not. That's not what we see in Acts 4. It's, it's not imposed. You know, in, in communism, we've seen these mass injustices. We've seen this corruption so different from here, where nobody is saying to the believers, you have to give. You have to give this amount or that amount. You have to sell your homes. This is all completely voluntary. It, 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 we'll talk about this later. It's coming from the heart. We actually read in the next section about Ananias and Sapphira. And, uh, and they, they, uh, they sell a home and they, or a field and they, and they give, it to the, give the money to the apostles and they say that they've given all the money, but really they've kept a bunch for themselves. And there's going to be a consequence to that. And we're going to talk about that in January. But Peter says to Ananias, I mean, the, the, home, the, the, the property was yours. And when you sold it, the money was at your disposal to do what you wanted. Nobody is imposing this. And, and the other thing you see in Acts is that the forms of generosity vary. 
You know, here you've got the sharing of possessions, you've got the selling and and giving away, but in Acts chapter 6, you've got distribution of food to those who don't have it. In Acts 11, you have an offering being taken up for a famine-struck region. In Acts 16, you have this this, this hospitality, people welcoming others into their homes. So it's, it's not, again, it's not this uniform kind of this is what it looks like. It's more... It's more this generosity from the heart that just takes all kinds of different shapes and forms. People still had stuff. Some sold it, some didn't, but it was generosity across the board. The other big difference with socialism is is that socialism tends to demotivate hard work, doesn't it? Like, why would I work harder if I don't make any more money and if I don't provide for my family anymore? But that's not what we see in the book of Acts either. In Acts 20... Paul says to the, uh, the elders in Ephesus, he says, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, here's the thing. Any human attempt at creating a kind of egalitarian, utopian society falls short because it leaves the heart untouched. It it tries to enforce something. It tries to impose something that can't be. But what we see in Acts, what we see in Acts 4, is a transformation of the human heart. Now, how does that happen? Where does that come from? That's that's what what I'm really excited about talking about. Here's the first thing we read in Acts uh, 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. They were one. And this wasn't achieved by some kind of mind-melding technology. It was because of a commonality that extended beyond common interests, such as like I like basketball, you like basketball. Hey, we're one in heart and mind. It wasn't just shared life stage, like, oh, I've got kids that are eight and five, we can hang out. And it wasn't a, a shared political kind of allegiance. This went way beyond that. It went beyond a shared socioeconomic status. That was a big thing in the ancient world, that you had to have this this reciprocity between friends. You know, whatever you give me, I have to be able to give you too. Otherwise, we're not equals and we can't be friends. And it's the same thing today. A lot of people look at others and they go, no, no, no. Your occupation, your position, your status, it's it's below mine. I can't be seen with you. I can't relate to you. And and so so you 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 don't hang out with them. But that wasn't the case in the early church. We've already seen that, how the wealthy were giving. They were, they were selling and giving and, and lifting up others. The, the doctors and the lawyers and the big estate owners were hanging out with the rough-around-the-edges, blue-collar fishermen. No, those old distinctions didn't matter anymore. It was a commonality that went beyond ethnic and cultural heritage. Because that as well was a big deal in the ancient world. Jews and Gentiles enemies opposed to each other even within those groups there were there was opposition there was a huge civil war in in israel a generation after jesus people fighting against each other and and we kind of see a a hint of that even here in in acts in act six we're going to read about hebraic jews and hellenistic jews Really quickly, Hebraic Jews were people, were Jews who had grown up in Palestine, immersed in Judaism. People who were Hellenistic Jews had grown up in other places, spoke other languages, had other cultures, and there was tension here. Now, do you notice something about this passage? 
with Joseph, who became known as Barnabas. He was from Cyprus. That's a different place. That's, that's like an island in the, in, in the Mediterranean, which means that he was a Hellenistic Jew. And here he is in Jerusalem among mainly, it would, it's likely mainly Hebraic Jews, and, and here he is giving what he has, selling and, and giving to help out. We see a hint of it there, but we see it in Acts especially, that, that Jew and Gentile, these divisions don't keep people apart anymore. They're together. This is one of the distinctive marks of the early church, is that you've got Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And this commonality transcended family bonds even. Jesus himself said in the Gospels that he would bring division to families. That, that, that his brother and sister and mother, that th- those weren't determined by who were biologically related to him, but instead by whoever does the will of his Father in heaven. You see, the early church understood themselves as a family. They called each other brother and sister. They understood that just as a family, you share a name and you share, you share parents. So as, as believers, you share a name, the name of Jesus. You share a father. You share a common feeling of the Spirit. You share an experience of the love and the grace of God. You share a common vision of the world, a common purpose in life, a common hope. You have this commonality as brothers and sisters that extends beyond anything else in this world. And so John, in his, in his letter, he says that if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? They're your brother and sister. If you see them in need, of course you're going to give whatever it takes to, to lift them up out of that. Because you're family. If you've got that kind of unity, one in heart and mind, generosity flows from that, but it goes even deeper than that. There's another basis for generosity. We read that they proclaimed the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great power and that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. This is a, these two statements are statements about the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and, and rose again. And, and they're statements that, that show that the early church's priorities were totally reoriented. That things that were so important, like possessions, no longer were. Because, because there was something so much bigger in their lives, some, something so much more important. But the reality also is that, is that in the gospel... They had received something so great and so generous that, that they wanted to give. They wanted to do what they had received. There's a story that Luke tells in his gospel about a woman who had a reputation of being a very sinful woman who comes into a home where Jesus was and, and she takes a very, very expensive jar of perfume. She pours it over the feet of Jesus. She wipes his, his feet with her hair. She's weeping. And, and, and then the people in the house are scandalized. They go, Jesus, don't you know who this is? Don't you know what kind of woman she is? And Jesus tells them a parable. And the point of the parable is that if you have been forgiven much, you're going, to, you're going to love much. But if you've been forgiven little, you're going to love little. The more 
you sense that you have received, the more willing you are to give. If you believe that you only have been given very little, that everything you have, you've had to work tooth and nail for, then you're not, you're not going to hold it with a very open hand. But if you believe that you have received an abundance out of grace, not because you deserved it, but out of grace, well, that changes everything. And instead of me talking about this anymore on my own, I want, I want to share a story with you uh, of someone in our church and, uh, and, and, and it goes along with this, and it's, it's one of the most powerful testimonies you'll hear. Uh, and it also, I, I'll give you a heads up, it, it also does reveal some of the, the darkest and twisted elements of, of human nature. And, and so for, for some of you, this, this may open up some wounds. And, uh, and we, uh, you know, I, I do want to invite you to, to speak to me or one of our other elders or leaders about that. And, and we can either come alongside of you and pray for you or we can, and we can refer you to a counselor. But in any case, I want to share with you Maggie's story. Um, I grew up in Philippines. I came from a poor family. So I had seven siblings, and after um, living with them, my parents separated, so I lived without a dad. So my mom raised us, and because we're so poor, I had to be separated from my other older siblings. So I lived with my, with my two younger siblings, with my mom and my uncle. normal at first, even if uh, I came from a broken family. Um, my uncle was living with us that time, and he's the one who was taking care of us after the school, so things happened. So sometimes we usually um, warn the people to be careful with the strangers, but we never told them to be careful, even, the mo- even inside the house. There is a monster. There is a monster. I was eight years old when my uncle sexually abused me and I was so naive. I did not know that or it was wrong. It, I think it was one week until he told me that don't tell this to anybody. When I heard that, I know there's something wrong. So I froze because I was scared already. And the last time, um, he sent my two younger siblings to the neighbor, so I was, I was left alone with him, and I wanted to run, but I cannot run away because I was eight years old. So um, it happened again. After that, after that day, the next day I had a repression. So repression is like um, involuntary shutdown of your memory that I totally forgot that one week of hellish thing experience. So I went back to live like a normal child. When I was 14 years old, I had a nightmare that my, that my uncle was taking me to the deepest part of ocean. That terrified me. So when I woke up, there are flashes of memories, flashes of scenes in my head head and I tried to to shrug it off that no it didn't happen but it was so consistent that oh yeah there's something happened from my past but uh, I think it was too late for me to to be scared or to get angry because um, I already grew up and I met Jesus um, 
um, when I was still young because Jesus has an easy access in my heart because I was really longing for a father and here he is. He's offering himself as, as my dad. Yeah, I became a Christian and most of them, they will say that forgive your enemy. So I forgave. But still, you know, there, there's still broke, um, brokenness in my heart. I was broken as a daughter. My femininity is also broken. So when I was in college already, and still pretend that everything is okay until such time that um, I became a nurse already. So to rebel against God, I chose Saudi Arabia. I said, oh, I will go to Ch Saudi. I was so angry with God that I gave my body to different men. I allowed these different men, different nationalities to use my body. And the last stroke was my, um, my ex-boyfriend's friend raped me again. And after that assault, that second assault, um, I look at the mirror and I cried without tears. And I, I kept on doing it. I kept on um, destroying my life. And one time I was screaming in my heart. All I wanted is to be loved. Is that too much to ask? I was screaming to God. Even if I, I, I was not praying that time, but that's the only prayer that I said to God. That is that too much to ask, to ask for love? But still, um, love for me was um, too, um, too rare. I was not really making an effort for my relationship because the first part of my, of my relationship with God is all about me seeking Him exerting effort but the second part of my Christian walk it was all God um, orchestrating everything so when I went here in Canada to um, process my work my work permit I, I was supposed to go to US but I was refused so I, I told my sister that then I will go to Israel because in my heart I knew that I need to go to Israel so um, I booked a flight and went to Israel. So when I was in Israel, um, God led me again to read the Psalms 18. And that was the first time that I saw God mad, but not to me, but to the people that took advantage of me. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and He saved me from my enemies. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storms, clouds were beneath his feet. Then he reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. So when I read this, like, wow, God was like a daddy, that he's so furious of, of things that happened to me. He allowed me to be, to be um, transparent to him, to be honest. And yeah, we, we deal 
with my emotion again because yeah, um, I heard that forgive your enemies like this, but nobody told me what to do with my wounds. So um, before God, I asked him this um, question, big question of where were you when that little girl was abused? Where were you when I was abused in Saudi? Where were you? And, and God was not surprised by my questions because he knew exactly where those questions are coming from. He doesn't see us in a crowd. He sees me as me, as, as if I'm the only one in the whole earth, in the whole world. So when I was in, um, when I was in Israel, he, Jesus told me that the, the journey to the cross did start in the Via Dolorosa. Via Dolorosa. It started in the Mount Gethsemane when he prayed for me until his sweat became blood fighting for me and then uh, we walked to the Via Dolorosa and he showed me where uh, where he fell and he told me that you're my motivation why I keep on rising up like I use my body to, sh to, to catch the bullet that was supposed to be for you so uh, I felt so loved. God, He paid for the real price with His blood, and that's why um, I now I, I can like um, I can keep my mouth shut talking about Jesus, and and sometimes I can I can I can say my my past my morbid past without crying. But when I will come to the part where where Jesus rescued me. So from brokenness to wholeness in Christ. So I feel like I'm in a self-actualization self that I'm complete with Christ. And this is not my story. This is God's story of His redemption of my life. Maggie's testimony, and I think about First um, Corinthians six: You are not your own; your life is not your own. You were bought at a price. See, you you probably don't have a testimony like Maggie's, and there, and there's this idea sometimes that if we don't have a testimony like that, or if we if we grew up in church and never had that period of rebellion, that that we can't experience the love of God in this way. That we that we we will not have that kind of generosity. But this isn't about comparing yourself to others. This is not about whether or not you have sinned little or less compared to other people. The issue is that you understand your state before God, that you come before Him in your sin, unworthy and condemned on your own, that you have lived and thought and acted in countless ways that have been in rebellion to Him. And yet, he loves you. And yet He has poured out His grace on you. He paid full price for you. If you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have gone to the cross for you. He would have given His life for you. 
And when you understand that, when you glimpse that, when you understand even just a piece of God's great, great love for you and how much He has given you, then, then you don't, you don't hold back. Like Maggie said, you don't, you don't keep your mouth shut. You don't hold back. And, and, and you don't just say, God, you can have 10%, but I get to keep the other 90% to do whatever I want with it. One person in the membership class yesterday was reminding us of a preacher who used this analogy. He said, you know the, the song, I Surrender All? Like, I surrender all. He's like, well, you know, a lot of Christians, they sing, I surrender one-tenth. And other, I guess other Christians would sing, I surrender 2.5%. It's not this legalistic thing where you, you give part of it and you've done your duty and now you can do whatever you want. It's that Jesus paid full price, gave you everything, gave you his life. And the response is to say, God, what can I give? How can I serve? What can I do to make your name known? And so this morning, I want to encourage you to give, not just give your money, give your, give your time, give your resources, give your praise, give your testimony. Give because you are one with your brothers and sisters in a new family, because the kingdom of God has reoriented your priorities, but most of all, because God gave everything for you. So, so give to the Christmas hampers, give to the work God is doing in and through here, but maybe start here. Ask that Jesus would make known to you again how much he has done for you and let him lead you from there. Let's pray. Jesus, you gave us everything. You gave your life at the cross for us, though we were unworthy, though we were broken, Though we were dead in our transgressions, you gave your life for us. You rose from the dead. You have won the victory, O Lord, over our enemies. You reached down and you pulled us up out of the grave. You have given us new life. And so, Lord, I pray above all else that we would not be trapped in, in legalism, that we would not be shamed into giving just because the example of the early church is so so other than us, Lord, but instead we would be inspired, we would be encouraged to know once again, Lord, the riches of your grace and that we would offer the entirety of our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.